I think that Europe has to talk Italian as it has to speak Bulgarian, as it has to speak Polish and it has to speak German. Because the problem is the moment that Europe doesn't speak Italian, you're left with people that are absolutely unpalatable politically, like Renzi, who ends up sort of disappearing from the map, or you have people talking for Europe that look like Salvini or that look like Meloni. So if Europe doesn't talk, those are the people that will talk for Europe. Welcome everyone to our first episode of Foresight Europe 2030, a new United Europe podcast series. In futurology, especially in Europe, the term foresight has become widely used to describe critical thinking concerning long-term developments, debate and shaping the future. My name is Daria Lucy, and I'm your host based in Berlin. Today's episode is all about Italy, and I'm happy to introduce my co-hosts from Italy, Elena Cicconi and Luca Contrino. Welcome, Luca and Elena. So, Elena, please introduce yourself. Well, uh, thank you, Diria. Uh, I'm Elena Cicconi. I'm from Italy. I study in Milan for my master's in intercultural and uh, international communication. I've done uh, an experience in Germany uh, about 2017-2018, uh, which like uh, consolidated my love for Europe and my interest in a more European perspective. Okay, Luca, where are you at the moment? Currently based in Brussels, Belgium, and I've been here for the last two years. Great. So please introduce yourself. So, my name is Luca Contrino. I was born in the beautiful city of Trieste in Northeast Italy. And uh, after nomadic experience, I've landed here in Brussels uh, and I've been here for the last two years. A little about my academic background. I studied languages at the bachelor's degree level and international relations at the master's degree level uh, through professional experience and studies. I've lived in a large part of the European Union, I can say. And the last two years, I've been here in Belgium. How many languages do you speak? Uh, I would say that I am fluent or at least comfortable communicating in an idiomatic manner in English, Italian, French and Spanish. I have an intermediate command of Portuguese, Swedish and Bulgarian and a few, the basis, uh, the basics in German and Russian. I'm really impressed. Where you're staying now in Belgium, they have also different accents. Partly they speak French, partly... Uh, correct, Belgium. So first of all, Belgium is also a federal state. It's divided into three main federal regions. The region, the Brussels capital region, Wallonia, uh, which is a French-speaking region with a small German-speaking minority, and Flanders, which is a Flemish-speaking region, Flemish being a variant of Dutch. And uh, yes, in this case, it's also a very linguistically fragmented country. And I guess Brussels is a particularly interesting microcosm because it's so international. Uh, Whenever I leave home, I always hear someone speaking Italian. That's how many Italians there are here in uh, Brussels. And I live in a neighborhood with a large Moroccan and Portuguese community. So hearing Arabic and Portuguese is an almost daily occurrence as well. Okay, so... uh Should we jump into it or, yeah, Martin, are you ready? I'm ready. To get questions? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for the questions. Okay, super. 
So good evening all and welcome to this episode of Europe Foresight's 2030 podcast exploring the possible paths that the European economy, institutions and society could take in the next 10 years. As mentioned, we will look at these issues with a focus on Italy tonight and here to help us elaborate. Uh, an outsider looking in, someone who's had an intimate knowledge of Italy over the last several years and here to welcome Martin Gack. Martin, good evening. And good evening, before Luca. we begin, please elaborate and tell us a little about yourself and how you came to be so intimately connected with Italy. Well, I was born and raised in Argentina, which essentially means that I'm Italian. All right, perhaps that should be explained explained out a bit better. But uh, so Argentina, in many ways, is a, it's an interesting time capsule for um, essentially pre-resorgimento, resorgimento, an immediate post-resorgimento, uh, Italy. Uh, 75% of the Argentinian population has Italian blood, or the Buenos Aires population at least. Um, I have absolutely no blood relation with Italy. Uh, I come from a Jewish family with Ukrainian roots and Moldovan roots. But um, through basically family, uh, etc., I've been always very connected to uh, to Italy. And then sort of a few years ago, uh, my relation was um, essentially became considerably more intense as I uh, as I really began to very regularly participate uh, in political conversations, did uh, do still do quite a bit of journalistic work um, with Italy. And eventually I also have a bit of a settle, settlement uh, in Puglia. So, I mean, it really, so I think I live in Berlin, but sort of my orientation is most certainly uh, in the direction of the, of the Adriatic. So that's essentially the story. I'm a philosopher by training. I spent many years in the U.S. That's why I have this ghastly accent. But uh, I do journalism by, by profession or by, by chance. So, Martin, and going back to the first question now, considering the uh, economic that uh, were taking place even before the disruption provoked by the current pandemic, uh, what do you think will be the key sectors for the European economy in a positive scenario, in a scenario with a successful and cohesive Europe? And what do you think will be the fundamental skills that will be necessary in order to compete in such an advanced economy? I mean, it's, it's quite difficult to answer uh, straightforward. I mean, in a sense, Europe is a massive tapestry of economic interests. And for the best, uh, for the best intentions of Brussels to say root out, for instance, coal, in the energy economy, uh, the idea that that is something that really overnight would be possible for you know for places like Poland, is quite simply it's quite simply not reasonable. The one thing that I think that the the the, the crisis this crisis has shown is that the digital way is a very very clearly uh, traced pattern for for economic development. Because one of the things we know now that we probably assumed before, but now we can see actually with great, great clarity is that digital economies have actually the capacity to essentially bridge profound crises that are basically that that can really break apart both the political, the political and the social fabric, uh, even the cultural fabric. But I mean, at, at the stage of geographies and the state of concrete sort of uh, concrete substantial material, uh, you know, I think that the two most salient examples as far as I'm concerned are Amazon 
uh, an American company operating in Europe with, you know, which has done extremely, extremely well at the detriment of a lot of European, of European economy. And at the same time, uh, Facebook, where you have a lot of movement happening, which actually sort of pans out into different economic areas of activity. Understood. And I guess focus in specifically on Italy, considering Italy's current economic structure. And I guess the uh, education that's available and the education in which it's specialized, where do you see Italy coming in with all of this? Yeah, it's, 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 again, I mean, it's another, it's, it's another very difficult, very difficult uh, a picture to draw because I think that you do not, first of all, you do not have one Italy. So, I mean, most certainly, um, if anything, I mean, this crisis has shown that the, the, essentially the Southern problem remains, remains a central problem. And it shows that there are at least, at least two very different countries. I mean, if the first wave, if the, if the spring wave would have hit Julia Basilicata, Calabria, the way it hit Lombardia, the way that it hit Piemonte, uh, we would be really in a situation of, you know, I mean, pun intended, I mean, this would really be Dantesque. Toscana excluded, but you know, I mean, these are these are regions that really do not have the infrastructural skills or the infrastructural capacity to to face something like that. So, I mean, I think that it's a very it's a very varied picture. I think that the problem that Italy Understood. continues to have, and it's completely visible, is the fact that it's still a very cumbersome place to do business. It's still an extremely extremely difficult place to get a lot of things done that in other parts of Europe are happening. And I think that Italy has also a fairly serious problem attracting talent. And the reason for that is oh, yes. that... <laughs> I can relate. Absolutely. I, get, I can relate. Yeah. I mean, so you can see it in every... So I come from academia. I mean, I'm a philosopher by training. Getting a visiting position in Lecce at the end, at the end of the territory requires that somebody in Rome signs off on your invitation. Uh, I this is, this story. is one step away from madness, really. I mean, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with transversing the banking system in Italy. Or, I mean, I, I got married in Italy. So, you know, I can tell you the system is one that needs in some sense to be sort of rebuilt and it has to be thought out again. I think that in, in the South, one of the, one of the um, very strong indicators of how is it that this thing could be done. I mean, I, I think maybe it's, it's pushing it too far saying rebuilt, but the models that you would see across Europe, that Italy can see across Europe and the generations that are now traveling across Europe and are actually sending money back home and are actually, you know, receiving, uh, receiving salaries across Europe. So in Germany or in Holland or in France, actually yes. have lived within those models, have lived within certain models that are more efficient and that actually produce, I think, essentially a more, a more uh, um, even, even uh, economic territory, say. And on that note, do you think it's possible to transpose those models in a context like Italy's? Well, I mean, not in one shot. Nothing can be mm. simply translated. And I think that, that nothing can be simply translated in one direction or the other. I think that, again, it, it's, it's, I, I, I wouldn't talk about Italy, generally speaking, but I think that the, the situation in, in Lombardia is certainly not the same situation in Basilicata. You know, Basilicata essentially has very, very, very few young people. I mean, you do have a massive, massive uh, flight of young talent and young labor. Uh, you also have a very strange problem in Italy, which is that, uh, especially in the South, again, you have 
best territory that could actually become agricultural, agricultural territory in a new kind of context. I mean, we're thinking about agriculture in a way that we were not thinking about agriculture 50 years ago. So this is the bio small farm, uh, uh, organic production, etc. Italy is very well placed for that also because the and land the is fresh. theoretically is one of, let's say, fresh produce, biological produce, but... Um, I guess Absolutely. modern agriculture doesn't necessarily uh, allow such a model to replicate itself on a sufficiently large scale to meet demand and keep prices low. I think that you're right, but I think that this is not a matter of magic. I mean, I don't, I don't believe in the invisible hand of the market. I think that this is metaphysical nonsense. I think that <laughs> what you have is basically large questions about regulatory will or regulatory capacity that come down to political will. So the day that, you know, the day that Farro becomes actually uh, sort of comes into production and the scale that sort of soft wheat, soft wheat comes into production, then what we will see is a reduction of prices of five euros a kilo, six euros a kilo to probably two euros a kilo. I mean, the problem that we have is really a problem of also, I think, political and geographic and social imagination. I mean, we still have a lot of young people that grow up in, say, in places like the Lazio. And then what they think is that the thing to do is really just become a successful banking employee in Milan. That kind totally of social... Agree. Sorry. I know, I totally agree. I mean, but considering the world of work and the world of education, how do you think this relationship between them will change due to the changes of technology and what will technology itself will bring to both since we're talking about uh, the world of work uh, to young people and also the education, which is at, at the basis of it all. Well, I mean, I, 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 I will tell you this much. I've been in home office since March. And the only reason why I am in Berlin is because essentially I cannot quite leave. But, you know, there were too many quarantines on and off. But there is absolutely no reason why I could not be sitting uh, in, in Puglia, essentially typing and producing and writing in the same way that I am here. I mean, there is none. There is only one issue, and it's actually a major one, which is the internet connection that I would get in my town is essentially a catastrophe. So this is something that, you know, it's a mark of a vast amounts of territory in this area. This is not a, this is not magic. This is not a problem of, these are not the gods that are making the internet in Puglia disastrous. This is a combination of lack of serious regulatory frameworks that demand certain things for that kind of infrastructure in Puglia. And it's a lack of political will and, and the company making the investments that they should. On the other hand, you can go to Taranto and see what actually regulatory sort of, you know, regulatory uh, acquiescence is when you look at the state of health directly at the edge of sort of a, ma a massive industry that is essentially killing people by the hundreds year after year after year. Yes, the so, Ilva steel plant. No, exactly, the steel yeah. plant in Taranto. So, I mean, this is, really, this is really something that I think we need to think very seriously. I consider myself a conservative, uh, and I don't know if I want to bring that directly onto the stage, but I would say my sense of conservatism is that we need serious regulatory frameworks. We really need to think about these things. How is it that we construct spaces. I agree. I really agree. I mean, there are so many factors um, that we need to consider that um, since we, we are this in a situation with coronavirus and so and whatsoever, we can not even imagine. There is a like a future perspective that 
we are allowed to think about, but also we cannot imagine what would would happen. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I would say this much. Um, I think that what you know, in a way, you see in certain parts of Italy. I mean, I can I can best talk about the area that I know best. I mean, I have a lot of relations with with Rome, and I have quite a bit of relations with Toscana. But I, I can really talk probably more most intelligently about Puglia and Basilicata. Uh, you know, I can tell you that it's it's absolutely clear. So nobody in even even Salvini voters or Meloni voters that are running around between Brindisi and, and Bari would still have a very strong sense of the importance of Europe. And the reason why they would have a very strong sense of the importance of if, Europe... If forced to, yes. I think on a rhetorical level, I would say that uh, perhaps it would require, again, uh, something a little more relatable in terms of direct experience in an everyday life. I mean, we but, can but definitely I, talk about this uh, for Salvini's base or the Lega base in uh, Veneto and Lombardia, because these are mainly small enterprises that export to... Mm. Germany, with whom trade with Italy is worth 55 billion euros, and France, with whom trade with Italy is worth 44 billion euros. Uh, whereas for all Salvini's pro-Russian stance, Italy's commerce with Russia amounts to 10 billion euros. So I think right. simple mathematics but, wins, oh, and pragmatism wins over, I think, I think, I think that Europeans. that's right. But, but what I would like to remind you and, and everybody is that there is such a tight relation between the small economy of, of Munich, so München, here Munich, and the person, the grandmother that is living, or the mother, the parents that are living sort of in, in, in Cistanino and are getting their kids with a pizzaiolo in München to send money monthly, that these things I actually... Not, not, it's not across the board. I mean, you will not see it in Bari, maybe, and Brindisi, but you will certainly see it the farther you go into, into Basilicata. And I think that this sense is one that becomes more important. I think that one of the problems that I, I do see is a lack of capacity of Europe to talk directly to those people that you were just referring to. I mean, Europe always talks through national governments, and I see this as a problem, but I don't... And arguably, in Italy's case, the communication between the national government and its citizens is often, uh, let's say, often fails to convince and engage, perhaps, at least. I, I think. And, and there's a language barrier as well, right? I mean, the, the language of the European Union is not Italian. Well, I think that this is actually a fantastic question, right? I mean, in what language? So there is my favorite phrase about the European Union remains uh, remains Kissinger, Henry Kissinger's phrase, which is when I want to talk to Europe, what number do I call? Um, and I think that this actually still depicts a basic problem, which is that you have this dispersion of European identities. But I think that Europe has to talk Italian, as it has to speak Bulgarian, as it has to speak Polish, and it has to speak German. Because yes. the problem is, the moment that Europe doesn't speak Italian, you're left with people that are absolutely unpalatable politically, like Renzi, who ends up sort of disappearing from the map, or you have people talking for Europe that look like Salvini or that look like Meloni. So if Europe yeah. doesn't talk, those are the people that will talk for Europe. In Germany, we have the luck that the one talking for Europe is Merkel. And everybody likes Merkel. The children like Merkel. So, I mean, you're fine. But if you're not that lucky, and I don't think any other country in Europe is that lucky, to be honest, in terms of the relation between the chief of state and the population, Europe needs to talk. And 
you know, I think that one of the things that we're really missing is precisely harnessing the power precisely uh, and the intimacy of the online digital space. I mean, the oh, digital sure. space is one that comes directly yes, to your house. Yes, uh, but we were talking about Salvini and Meloni um, and it's basically pop populism. Um, in the future, what will populism look like? And um, in your opinion, will it be like an agenda setting or more like a margin of force? No, I think we're we're way past that. I mean, not only they're an agenda setting force, I mean, they have already set the agenda and we're basically in the middle of this. I mean, one of the greatest, one of to me, one of the greatest mysteries, I mean, I do quite a bit of political consulting. So I, I have not quite understood until today how is it that nobody in Italy has been able, I mean, either in the center, in the center right or the center left, has been able to take advantage of the fact that Salvini's best friend in Budapest is essentially Absolutely. keeping money away from vast, vast numbers of Italians. The fact that this has not it wasn't, been... It wasn't just Orban, it was also Hert Wilder It was very vocal about uh, retaining money that would have been assigned to Italy through European funding in Holland. I think you're absolutely right. I think that this could have been pushed much, much farther. You could go with every of the friends of Salvini. But my point here is that the actual veto, the actual veto comes from two places that are directly related to the Salvini circle. I mean, how is it that this has not been politically efficiently deployed is something that to me is, is completely mysterious. I truly do not understand it. Now, I don't think that we're at the stage in which we are waiting to see if Salvini, if Le Pen, you know, will set agenda or if the AfD in Germany will set agenda. The AfD is the main opposition party. The agenda is already set. The question yes. that we have now, which I think that five years ago I would have said, it's a crazy question to even ask is how is it that we actually roll back the neo-nationalism and the sort of populism? I think we use populism for a lot of things, but how is it that we roll back that agenda item that has already been installed? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we have to see what, what the kind of role the European institution will, uh, will play and uh, will have in um, political, economic, and also social sphere, because we are at a point uh, where we must take a decision. We must take a, a chance. I, I would say, uh, Elena, that uh, this is not a job for Brussels. This is a job that Brussels by itself at this stage cannot do. And we have, we have uh, you know, you know uh, uh, Singaretti speaks in, uh, in, in salons and uh, Salotto, and, and Salvini speaks at the bar. And Brussels is actually sort of, Brussels is drunk under a table in Brussels. So the problem that we have is that we have very serious communication, a serious communication deficit. I don't think there is a democratic deficit. There is a massive communication deficit. The tools, the tools are on the table. We know exactly what they are. And if we want to learn how to use them, we can actually look at Bannon. We can look at the Mercers. We can look at how they operated under Brexit. We can see how Bannon helped to set up the AfD campaign in Germany. We can see how Bannon helped set up Salvini's campaign in Germany and all the people that operated in that space. This race is an interesting operational, I guess, to a degree, um, a question on principles, because essentially that communication is efficient because it works on emotion and, well, manipulation and often oversimplification of deeply complex issues. The question is, can a technocratic institution, or at least the technocratic institutions such as the Commission, and should such institutions 
take on such an approach of oversimplification and speaking explicitly to emotion. And I guess we can say to a degree, tailoring the message in order to elicit a certain response as arguably the alt-right or the intellectual dark web or however we want to call them have been able to do so. I mean, I, I, I agree only partially with, with, uh, with the assessment of man. And I mean, I think that in some sense, it's something that is true, that this was essentially emotional pornography. I think that you're right. I think that there is a lot of that. But I think that also what many of these outfits have managed to do is talk to deeply ingrained reasons that these people have. Now, it doesn't mean that they were good reasons. I'm not saying that those were good reasons, but those were reasons. I mean, I can tell you about Paris in which friends that are thoroughly liberal with all the liberal sort of certificates and stamps and medals, we're talking about the impossibility of operating in certain neighborhoods which were dominated by the Muslim community. Now, until Macron came up with this sort of cacomania plan a couple of like uh, weeks or, or a month and a half ago, there was almost nobody outside of the space of the right that actually could address it. So the problem that we have is not even just echoing the emotional, the emotional output. The problem is that to that kind of discussion, the European Union, Brussels, and it, its defenders, people like myself, I mean, I consider myself a staunch, staunch European, uh, probably because I come from Argentina, where is, you know, the community has this idea sort of, I think that that space has to be occupied. If we don't talk, if we don't have an effective way to talk precisely to those people, then the only voice that is heard is that one. Which, and what you said actually brings back an interesting point. Sorry, Luca, can, can I say one more thing? Of course. My there is something that to me remains actually a, a really remarkable thing, which is that as you look at European media, what means European media, what you will find consistently is... Arguably very little. Very little and in English. Yes. I mean, can somebody explain that to me? This is quite literally like walking into, you know, you're walking into a Polish bar to explain Europe and you're talking to them in the language of Sarah Lawrence University in, in New York State. I mean, the, the incongruence of, of, of communicational strategy is, is, is staggering. So we should not be surprised that when we are talking to them in the English of Sarah Lawrence, we are losing the battle against Radio Maria that is speaking in Polish, echoing sentiments that many of these people in those populations have. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about communication strategies, communication channels, and this kind of uh, monopolization and fragmentation. But what kind of changes do you envisage in the media landscape in Europe? Look, I mean, I, I, my, my, my first intuition is that Europe has to really move very quickly to start declaring social media, social media uh, landscapes and platforms, critical infrastructure. I think that we are past that, that discussion really should have already come to an end. It's very clear that whatever is happening within these spaces is absolutely. So I take social media platforms to be perhaps the center space of our, of our, of our uh, public sphere. Political discussions are happening there. Funding for political campaigns is happening there. Political, of course, political messaging is happening there, plus commercial exchanges, plus cultural development, et cetera, et cetera. So our democracy, so to say, depends to a large degree on what happens there. 
this is an instrument that we have to become much, 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 much better, much better at developing in the sense that this is not something that can be simply left to the hands of others. This space, if developed, could also be the space for, back to the question that was originally posed, for economic development. I mean, in that space, uh, I think that the European Union really looking for much more effective ways and the usual technocratic repetition to deploy those tools and really produce a social uh, public European public sphere, as far as I'm concerned, should be the first order of business. And let me tell you one, one quick thing. That is probably the only space that we have right now where we actually have anything like a European public sphere, because it's the only sure. place where you can have automatic translation, transnational communication, yeah. straddling, including areas of conflict. I mean, and, I guess, and it's directly in front of us. And I guess going back to the Italian context, because perhaps you mentioned poor internet penetration, or at least a very poor quality of internet coverage in Italy. And I can also think of a, popu a very uh, elderly population. The average age in Italy is approximately 45, which means uh, the median age, pardon. So half the population is over 45, half the population is under. Uh, with an elderly population accounting for approximately 22% of the population, by that I mean 65 and over. So with these two factors leading to, uh, let's say, very low engagement in internet media and I guess also a lack of innovation in the media space, do you think such an issue is hampering communication in Italy at present? Yeah, I think you're right. But I mean, uh, two things to be said. Across Europe, we're talking about 400 million people who use just Facebook. I'm not talking about like platforms overall. I'm talking about just Facebook, almost half yeah. the population of Europe. And the thing that is really quite remarkable about it is that Facebook really doesn't mean one thing. Facebook is a space in which all sorts of different instruments can be and have been developed. So if you imagine something like a European Facebook, which is ruled by European law, the terms of services are not actually defined in California, but you have this kind of umbrella space in which things are developed, including, say, payment systems and banking, so on and so forth. This is actually also a space when process of engagement that are catered to our populations become a possibility. And that has to do with promoting also local industries. But isn't that too late? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I know this argument and I think it's a powerful argument when one looks at the numbers of Facebook. But I like to remind all my friends every time I get into this conversation that China did it incredibly effective and did it, of course, through the political will of the state. So the technical issue is not there. It can be done. And Russia has done it through private means, including Signal, which is but now housed in Dubai. Years back, Russia and China have done it almost like 10 and years back, right? 10 years is a blink. And perhaps, 10 years most, is a blink. Ironically, uh, perhaps most ironically, uh, the founder of Contactia, the, the popular Russian social media network, grew up and studied in Italy. And I yet, was not aware of this. This invention had to take place in Russia, apparently in Italy. The innovative I mean, space wasn't there. And I guess going sorry. back to the theme, the central theme of tonight, can we expect this, for lack of a better term, this sterile environment for innovation in the media space to continue or to improve going forward in the next 10 years in Italy, in your opinion? I mean, 
as I said, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not a religious man, so I don't believe in metaphysics. I don't think the gods are in charge of this. I think that this is a matter of regulatory, uh, and I don't believe in politics, by the way. I think that politics are fine, but you have, you know, if you have great debates and great discourse about the future of the nation, about the glorious past, it's probably because it's much easier than having a conversation about the, the, the holes in the street and the state of our schools and like city lighting, that's a lot more boring. So I think that I am convinced that people that are committed to the political questions, which I certainly am committed to the political questions, the answers that they need to start producing are regulatory answers. That is to say, we need to ask questions about how is it that infrastructure is developed in Italy? How is it that the promotion of industries developed across Europe. Does Europe need, in my mind, actually, I will not even pose it as a question. Europe needs the promotion of digital industry across the board. And it has to be done right now or yesterday. I agree. I mean, I think that this is the problem, right? That we need actually, we are late to the game, but we have a great advantage, which is that we yes. are still the biggest market so far on earth. So, you know, the, the fact that these things are there, the fact that we have sort of a blog, the fact that we have a we have a legal system, a legal structure that is the envy of even many people living within the US, living in Canada, living certainly in Latin America, would make this kind of space for development a very, very, very promising space. I think that this is something that has to be pushed. Now, just to answer your question, will this change? No, it will not. It will not unless there is serious political will behind it and really a strong regulatory force. Right. And actually, that brings me on to my next question, which is assuming the political will is in place, be it at the national level, at the regional level, through a push by, mean, by way of civil society or the private sector, what are the fundamental changes, let's say, in a very broad structural sense in economy and education that Italy needs in the, right now, in the most pressing manner, in order to really, um, in order to really exit this, um, we can say, socioeconomic malaise that has been affecting it for the last thirty years, more or less, and really, where we can have a, a possible, let's say, a rosy scenario ten years from now, or at least a scenario for real optimism. I mean. Uh I, I don't think you need to sort of put as your target a rose scenario. I think that what you really need is more than anything else, more than anything else is opportunity. An opportunity is not necessarily just giving you the, the green sort of the green plot of land so that you can actually grow your tomatoes. That's not it. Opportunity in Italy, given the state of affairs right now, is essentially the elimination of impediments. Yes. The first thing that you need to sort out is the elimination of impediments, because this is actually, there was a comedian that used to say this about Argentina, and because again, Argentina is a region of Italy. Uh, I would just repeat it for, for the country. Italy is wonderful in all sorts of ways, but there is one issue that it has to solve, which is it works as an impediment machine. And I think that these are the things that you can see at every level, at every level. Through that process of locating the impediment and actually eliminating it, you actually produce opportunity. And the moment you produce opportunity, you actually give the space for certain forms of growth. Then you have other issues, which is, okay, can you put subventions on the development of digital industries? Can you put <laughs> subventions in development of subventions services for the elderly? Perhaps not for the right things. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. 
Fair enough. But I mean, it is, it is, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an enemy of subvention. I mean, I'm not an enemy of taxation. I don't belong oh, no, to, of course not. That's... Uh, you know, I, I, I am, I was going to say, I don't belong to the libertarian right sort of, you know, which was producing the guts of Enron's bad stomach problems. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I really let's, think that. It, <laughs> let's, let's leave that in Enron's books. I think we don't need right. real life I mean, applications. So, but, but, but the point Absolutely. I want to make is that. It is about the construction of the state. I am a believer on the importance of the state and the construction of the state. I want lighting. I want good security. I want well-paved roads. I mean, this is not me being a Stalinist. This is me saying simply, these things are of importance in order also to give you the basic infrastructure that actually eliminates the impediment of having to run your car over miles and miles and miles of stones and holes. Basically, an, an elimination of inequalities and uh, let's move forward. Let's progress. Well, I think that that's really a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic point, because one of the things that you also can see in Italy with, with great clarity, and you can see it really across Europe. I mean, you can, you can go to East Germany, what used to be communist Germany, in which division you can still kind of feel it if you, if you actually yes, I know. put your finger on it. And one of the things you see is that it is precisely what impediment does is emphasizes inequality. I mean, we have now actually a very interesting debate in Argentina. There is a debate about abortion. And the claim is that there is no abortion in Argentina because it's illegal. This is obviously a lie. Oh, of course. I mean, there is abortion, much like there is access if you have the money. So th this is the kind of thing that impediment does. Impediment never applies equally to everybody. So I think that you're absolutely right, absolutely right, that eliminating impediment is actually also a way to equalize opportunity because there are people that have a lot of opportunity, but that's because they can buy it themselves. And actually, I guess, going on from this point, would you say that the current inequalities in Europe in general and focusing on Italy, and I guess most obviously in the North-South divide to which you hinted at the start, do you think there is a vested interest or at least a concerted effort in maintaining said impediments and inequality for the benefit of specific uh, political or economic or social actors? No, I mean, I, I wouldn't talk. I don't think that there is any, Italy does not need sort of any, uh, say, conspiratorial overarching umbrella, right? I mean, I would say that this is not, the problem is not really vested interest. The problem are the sort of very mundane and very sort of short-sighted interest, the myopia at the state of the individual in the, in, you know, sitting inside the office. A culture of individual short-termism, we could say. I think that that's very much it. I mean, it's short-termism, or uh, it's it's the word can be used in Italian or in Spanish, but it doesn't exist. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist in in English. I think, but I think that it's it's precisely that. It's a commitment to the short term that cannot really sort of see beyond it. And then the problem that you have in addition is that very often, you know, the political will it's not enough to change entire cultures, right? So, I mean, a story that I quite like about a, a city in Germany, uh, a very short anecdote, a city in Germany in which a new minister of economy for the city, so it would be the secretary of the commerce for the city, essentially, but sure. in many of the cities, the minister of the economy comes in and meets her new secretary, and her new secretary shakes her hand smiles at her, looking at her in the eyes and says, so, sorry, I meant for, for, failed to mention that this woman came from the, from the Linke, from the, from the left, no. from the far left, essentially. Okay. And the secretary says, smiles at her and says, uh, I am a Christian Democrat and I've been uh, secretary of this office for 25 years. 
So, I mean, I think that this is really, in, in, in a nutshell, the problem that you have is that you have institutional cultures and structures that are very, very, very difficult to move and require much more than sort of a one-time effort. I mean, what you need is basically an environment in which these things are not, no longer viable. Right. So, so if you really do have the development of, you know, an entire field of digital industry, let's say, or if you have like alternative agriculture and you do have the pressing need to move merchandise or to move, you know, to move uh, goods from one part of the country to the other, the bottlenecks right. at, the, at, the, at the spot of taxation, the bottleneck at this point of, of uh, let's say, shipment and logistics, et cetera, mm. they eventually dissolve because the environmental pressure becomes enormous, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is yeah. why for many of these places has been so good, I mean, Basilicata or so on, to have foreigners kind of appearing, appearing in the water. I mean, this is, well, this is why I also love Europe, right? Because it does produce this kind of thing. You just get on the plane and you land sort of in Basilicata or you land in like, you know, Athens or you land in like Madrid, whatever it is. And I mean, and basically you bring something from the outside and at the same time in the reverse mode. So I think that that kind of environmental pressure is all, it's, it's very, very important. And that is, I think, one of the main jobs that Europe can do sort of in that social cultural uh, constellation, let's say, or alignment. No, no, so in the, in the social, in Italy's social cultural ecosystem, if you yeah, will. Yeah, and I, I think guess, that's very nice, very nice, yeah. So I guess combining uh, elements to encourage a, Cultural shift. I, I think that the point is not so much cultural shift, but I think mm. that what I'm specifically talking about is institutional cultures, right? I mean, obviously, ah, they do, people carry their homes into their jobs. I, I don't disagree with this, but I think that there are many different ways to do that. Uh, and I think that the issue is that when you have, you know, so if the city depends on Ivana Trump uh, or Ivanka Trump going to this city in, in, in Puglia, for to the marriage of a friend and this is something that the authorities know every single like bottleneck to getting married in italy which usually are quite high essentially dissolves disappears how oh. is it that for one particular case all of a sudden sort of the machine works so so well that is what i call environmental pressure or in the case of a Uruguayan footballer looking for his Italian passport. <laughs> indeed, indeed, exactly. So well, this I is mean, the case with Suarez. Uh, Suarez, exactly, which yeah. would have been much easier if his name would have been Batistuta or something of the kind. But so with Suarez was uh, more obvious, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these are really these are really the questions, right? It's not that the system cannot work. We have seen the system work. We have seen the system work. And as a matter of fact, I mean, so sorry, but perhaps I have time to tell you another very short anecdote. Please do. Uh, I went through hell, through hell, to use my bank in Italy remotely. Hell. I mean, literally hell. I can it was imagine. Seven months of having to travel back to Italy just to get a pin. I mean, this is something that I had never seen in my life. I did banking in the US because I lived there 20 years. I did banking in France and I did banking in Argentina and Germany. Never seen this. Now, let me tell you how actually this got solved. I sat down with the person that I saw every time I went into my bank, who was an absolutely lovely lady. I mean, I have nothing bad to say about her, who for seven months or six months could not sort it out. It so happened that working on the ATM that was directly <laughs> next to us was a guy in his overall 
laying on the floor with his head inside the machine. And he overheard me explaining my predicament. He just came out of this sort of machine and said, I think I can solve this for you. And, I, you know, my, my, my usual interlocutor said, well, how would you? And he said, well, I'm also a computer technician. So sometimes I do within five minutes, within five minutes after six months. Uploaded on my phone and I had actually online uh, uh, digital banking, remote banking. So the, the, the madness of this experience was such and was so eye-opening. I mean, as I stood up, I went to the manager and said, whatever you do on Monday morning, you have to come back and give this guy a promotion. <laughs> Because this is exactly, this is exactly, this was a perfect example, right? I mean, you have an impediment, which is completely magical. There is no reason why I couldn't download an application of a bank that is supposed to have like, you know, which has European customers from anywhere other than Italy. And then this guy who just happens to be very competent, but is put in a position of complete sort of background comes forward and says, Hey, I can solve it for you in five minutes. So it works. It can work. We know that the question is how do we promote those people and actually solve the system so that, you know, a bank that is actually selling services to European citizens can actually provide those services. <laughs> well, I guess yeah. in the case of Italy's young people, many don't ask themselves the question, wait for the moment. They just leave to find a place knowing that they can find that opportunity earlier than, earlier than a, a, a moment requiring their intervention. Well, I mean, I mean you know, every, every time I, I mean, so just keep it, you know, I'm a foreigner. I love Italy with, with, with a passion and I have my real, the same relation that I would say I have with, with Argentina where I was born. It's love and hate almost every day. But the one oh, thing I that happens you. in really every conversation I have, every conversation I have, one of my best friends is an Abruzzese from like up in the hills over uh, Giulianova. And, I am too. Oh, really? Okay, yes. there you go. I really, really miss that part of uh, coast. So... Uh, Gianmario usually sort of the conversations go, he's teaching economics uh, after being through Cambridge. He's now in the Midlands teaching economics. He's actually somebody who has become really very established in his area and he is in his 40s. I mean, this is somebody that you would say, okay, well, you know, just bring this guy back and find him something because he would actually... So usually when I explain sort of, you know, my ambition of one day, I mean, obviously the, the response that I always get is la scoperta del chocolate. So the discovery of <laughs> chocolate, it's like there is nothing new about the idea that a good job in Italy is winning the lottery. Oh, so this, oh, what, yes. this adds, oh. what this adds to the story is that the will to return, like these people are not lost forever. Right. I mean, you have people that are still many of them at an age, some of them obviously no longer at an age with once people establish families, that movement becomes either immediate or impossible. Immediate because exactly. people really need to return at whatever cost or impossible because you establish your life somewhere else and then you know, the life of your children dictates. But it is a possibility. Absolutely. And the talent is there. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree because I also have family outside and it was like the run of the brains and like they call in Italy la fuga dei cervelli. So how do you think we can pull this invisible string back to Italy? How are we prepared? How can we prepare? 
I am not a fan of big political discourse. I am a b big fan and I'm very committed to the political questions, but I think that those political questions have to be answered at the stage of regulation and, and essentially the facts on the ground. So as I was telling you, I, I tried to apply for a visiting position as a philosopher when I was still a philosopher. This was about like half a decade ago. I mean, now I'm a philosopher in remission, I suppose. Um, <laughs> one never stops being a philosopher. My mother please, is one, so... <laughs> please don't say that. Please don't say that. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, my mother's 54 and finishing a philosophy PhD. So for my, my okay, impression that's, is that, that's, yes. That's brilliant. But that, is truly, that, that, is truly, uh, that is truly a commitment. I mean, no, I, I, I still love the profession. But so uh, back then, when I was still involved in academia, in any case, I uh, not particularly concerned with money. Uh, I just wanted a visiting position in Italy. And it really could have been, you could have sent me to Mestre. I would have gone to Mestre happy, uh, you know. Oh, don't um, be so sure about that. Well, <laughs> I'm just I'm just <laughs> looking here for a way to exemplify the point. But um it was it was really incredible. I mean, it was just Byzantine in ways that I never imagined a system could be. Okay, so there you have like immediately a point. Here, there you have immediately a space where you produce you know improvement. Obviously, you are going to find that there are three or four instances of people that are getting salaries to stamp the paper for the second guy to stamp the paper for the third guy to stamp the paper for the fourth guy to run with the paper back to Mestre and present it to a guy that will get paid to take it to the, you know, to the administration of the building. All of that chain is one that it's not very difficult to identify. You can go to, I mean, you know, I do some work with the OECD. You can go to them and you can look at regulatory frameworks and improvement of regulatory frameworks. You yeah. can look at how that machine, you don't need to look at all of Italy. You don't look, need to look at all the academic system, just that machine, just that mm -hmm. mechanism. And you need right. to start pulling it apart. The same thing with the banking process. What happens? Who is in charge of making sure that Italian banks that are actually have an international projection are actually delivering their services? It's just one particular, I mean, it's, it's a matter of consumer rights, right? But it's one very tiny element, but there you have it. And if you really do have a massive army of citizens which are committed to locating, identifying, and beginning to demand the breakup of those mechanisms, well, you begin to see a change. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're going to produce a rosy future. It means that you're going to start dissolving impediments and producing opportunity. So this actually brings up a very interesting additional point because to a degree, this inertia can therefore be explained by a relative apathy on the side of the citizen going through these services and this business environment, or at least insufficient channels for citizens to demand the necessary quality of service and change in business structure and bureaucracy. I think that you have two things. I think that on the one hand, what you have is apathy, but I think that on the other hand, what you also have is, is fatigue. Um, so one of the most important books in my Italian formation or the formation or the, the, the reconstitution of my Italianness is uh, uh, Christ stopped at Evoli. Oh, of and course. <laughs> one of my favorite moments in Christopher Devoli, having read it as uh, sort of a, an aging, an aging adult, say, let's say, is when um, confronted with the question of, of fascism, of, 
this old woman that that Levy meets almost at the beginning of the book has as a response patience, paciencia, right? So I mean, I think that this to me is very indicative. It's not really lack of. It's not necessarily apathy. It's not lack of empathy for the guy that is suffering and has been sort of transported from Torino to like sort of the hills of Basilicata. It's not that. It's sort of a mm. sense of the machine is quite simply too big. Oh, so it's a resignation, as it were. I mean, I, I don't want you to get the feeling that this is something that is sort of only germane to, to, to Italy. No, no, absolutely uh, not. <laughs> one, of the, one of the favorite lines that w- you learn when you, when you move to Germany uh, is the line that every public employee loves, which is, ich will meine Ruhe, which means, I just want my, I just want my tranquility. And, you know, what disrupts your tranquility could be me just coming in and asking for, you know, asking for where is the bathroom or asking you to do work that, you know, you, you, it might be in your job description, but normally you don't do. So just, I, I, you just don't have, you don't feel like it. No, this is, this is a fairly common example across bureaucracies. Exactly. In several European countries. Exactly. But uh, I was... Really, my question was uh, getting at, I guess, the the citizen side of the relationship and wanting to try to at least start getting at why, I guess, the citizen resigns him well, or herself I think that, to the As process. I said, I think that there are two elements. One is the problem has to be visible, right? And if you'd been there for way too long, living under those conditions for too long, you if you're used it. to the fact that mm-hmm. you cannot actually access the bank, you cannot access your account, or that you need to you know, jump through infinite hoops in order to get, then at that point you're resigned and you just don't see the problem anymore. But the second thing that has to happen is that there has to be a serious possibility of essentially winning at that game, not to produce complete despondency. Because after you tried for an infinite number of times, the reaction is like, well, you know, whatever, I'm going to go do something else. I will play football and this will get resolved whenever it gets resolved. And if it doesn't, you know, I mean, the legal system in Italy will probably take 25 or 30 years to put like this thing through it. So, you know, who cares? Uh, I think that apathy is not, you know, it's not the only story. I think that the story of the, of the Italian, of the Italian consumer is also one of essentially many, many failures, right? So for those machines, for, for that engagement, I mean, I, I like the story of the sardines a lot, uh, and the story, the reason why I like the story of the sardines is because I think that they figured something out, which is that you locate the problem at the base, much in the way that their opponents, sort of the Salvini and the right, located their problem at the bar. Because a lot of the people that were complaining, there were a lot of people complaining about immigration, but there were also a lot of people in bars complaining about people complaining about immigration. And those did not have actually a way out. They did not have an output. So I think that that kind of thing in which you can identify it and you can actually start dissolving it also brings about, you know, I don't want to sound too religious about this, but it brings a Not sense really. of hope. You have to show that the system can be changed. It cannot just be a political discourse. Of course. Absolutely. I wanted to thank you because this was like enlightening in so many levels. <laughs> I hope I, I hope you have better enlightenments than this one. But uh, no, I feel I feel very strongly about these things, and I and I love and I truly sort of not only love Italy. This for me is not an abstract thing. I mean, I love you know my friends, and I want to see my friends and my life and my child. That the name of my child is Cosimo. I mean, that's that's you know my commitment to the region. I want to see this kid 
grow up in That's an environment beautiful. that is conducive for him to have a full Italian life where he can actually, you know, if that is his choice, fully develop in that context and have the opportunities that I had and that I've seen that are possibilities. So, you know, this is probably a, a bit of my, a bit of my excitement. Also, it's almost 10 p.m., so I compensate for exhaustion by just shouting. <laughs> no. no worries at all. Actually, I'd like to ask you one final question before we conclude, and feel free to really summarize it in as few words as you like. So we looked at a little bit, I guess, the way Europe could potentially influence the discourse within Italy. I'd like to, uh, as it were, swap the equation around now and look at especially in the current situation and prospectively 10 years from now, Italy's role in Europe, uh, can, it, can it be a voice that holds weight or will it most likely be relatively marginal in most, um, most major themes pertaining to the continent and to the institutions? Look, I mean, you know, Giscard, Giscard d'Estaing uh, died uh, yesterday. Um, and I think that that was a fantastic name to have. But if you ask me, what we have now and we enjoy uh, was what we enjoy, really, the freedoms and this entire amazing machine which we live, which I'm grateful every day. I mean, I grew up in a place where 30,000 people disappeared in a period of mm -hmm. six years. So the sense that European law, human rights, the Copenhagen criteria, the idea of the rule of law, for me, these are not abstractions. For me, these are not things that we talk about because it sounds cool in cocktail parties. So of course not. if you ask me where those things come from, I will tell you, yes, I mean, Giscard d'Estaing and, 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 and so on, wonderful. But it's really, you really have to go, you really have to go to a, a, a well, this is a really anticlimactic end when I cannot remember the name. Uh, uh, Ventotene. Comitato di Ventotene, yeah. Right. So, so if, you, if you ask me, can Italy have weight in the European? I mean, Italy has to some degree birthed the idea. Absolutely. Right? Has birthed the idea. And the intellectual machine and the commitment to certain things that Italy has given have actually replicated. I mean, okay, if you ask me historically, I think that, you know, the Napoleonic, the Napoleonic presence, the Bourbonic presence, etc. I mean, I think that we are all of these things, but I think that Italy has actually, on the one hand, the history to back it up, but on the other hand, has actually a history of, or, or a commitment, a character that is quite committed to Europe because it's deeply mm -hmm. connected to Europe. It's deeply connected to France, it's deeply connected now to German and the German economy, has, you know, all of these things make it actually a very potent player. The problem Absolutely. is... Absolutely. My great-grandfather yes. was born an Austrian subject, but he was also born in Trieste, as I was. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, but, you know, look, I, 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 as I was saying, I got married in Italy uh, and I got married inside a Bourbonic castle. Right. That's I mean, and the people that I mean, and, and I go to Venice and what I hear in the streets of Venice is essentially Castilian, Castellano, whatever we speak in Argentina. So, I mean, you know, really in every direction that you move, you see this and you feel it and you can taste it. The issue is, I think that the issue is not so much whether Italy can actually have a preponderant place in Europe. I think that the question is whether Europe can really, and I'm by Europe here, I really mean Brussels can show Italy that Italy still counts and can show Poland that Poland still counts and can talk, can talk to those people who actually 
are the beneficiaries, but at the same time, very often feel left in the in the left out in the in the in the cold. I guess we can many paraphrase Massimo D'Azeglio, "Fatta l'Italia, dobbiamo fare gli italiani." So, and we can say, uh, "We've made Europe. Now let's make Europeans." Okay. Let's make Europeans, absolutely. But uh, so, just just one last point, which is that making Europeans to a large degree, a large degree, consists in the language. Yeah, we need to okay. feel that we are part of a community. And you cannot possibly feel that you're part of a community if what you hear from, you know, if you all you hear from Europe is Renzi's voice and the English spoken by Politico. Right? I mean, if these Agreed. are the things that... So, so okay, this is an exaggeration, obviously. But the, the point I'm trying to make here is that if you want to make the Pullians Europeans, you need to speak dialect. It's, it's, it's that simple. Yes. If you want to How make is Europe... that possible? How, how would you realize that? The I machinery that sits in Brussels and it's impossible to kind of communicate to all accents and all languages in Europe. No, I think that, you know, the one thing that you have to begin by recognizing is that in those places, there is already Europe, right? In those places, there is already Europe. In Bari, there is already Europe. So those are the people. So the point I think that I'm trying to make with this is that you cannot simply sit in Brussels and talk to Brindisi. You need to be in Brindisi. And that doesn't mean that you send sort of a Viceroy vice Borbonic style into Brindisi and let him sit sort of, you know, at the port and sort of explain to, to the people in the, in the Brindisi area how is it, to, how is it that they're going to be Europeans. You need basically Brindisi to explain to Brussels how to be European. I think that this is the point. Yes. We need a bottom-up. We need a very strong commitment to a bottom-up approach, both to communications, mm. but also essentially to the construction of a European identity. I mean, I am completely committed to the idea that digital platforms are not the silver bullet, but are one of the strongest candidates to build essentially a European, a European nation, so to say. I mean, in, in, in the modern term, sense of the term. So a European space is one that we can only, you know, inhabit one city at a time or even one street at a time. But what digital spaces actually do give us a chance to do is to be in many, many places at the same time. Uh, so I think that that kind of use is one that has to be developed. I don't have a model for it, a specific model. I think that there are a lot of candidates that we could actually look and we could begin to look for ways to develop. But I think that the instruments are there and the tools are there. And I think it's, it's, it's simply non-realistic after so many failures to suppose that Brussels can talk and Brindisi, Bari, Molise, etc. Molise will actually listen. It just won't happen because they are ultimately too far. Understood. Absolutely. It's also a matter of culture. It's, it, the culture for Absolutely. me is at the basis of everything. Absolutely. So let's start with culture and then let's move forward. So it was, um, like I said, enlightening in philosophical and uh, truly uh, words. I appreciate it. I'm blushing, and, uh, although people we, cannot see it because it's just audio, but I am blushing. <laughs> We've touched every possible basis for like a future foresight, for a future scenario in Italy and uh, how Italy can be a role player, a role changing and uh, also, let's say, uh, rule breaker sometimes in Europe mm. or in the future. 
And uh, I want to thank you for that because uh, there are some so many things I didn't know. I maybe maybe I underestimated or overestimated. And uh, right now I have uh, another perspective to look forward. That's, that's very very kind of you. To look at it. Very kind of you. I, I thank you for the the kind words. Really. I thank you for your time. <laughs> it was uh, it you, was Martin. great. So thank you so you much, guys Martin. It's well. been a great conversation. Yes, it we was, should do this again. Absolutely, it was. I'll be more than happy. This is uh, this is a lot of fun, and particularly when it's about Italy. I mean, we never got to the discussion as to whether the lasagna is better, sort of in Bologna or in Napoli. But we can leave that for the next time. <laughs> okay, guys, have a good night. Thank you very much yeah. for the invitation. It was thank you for your time. That was fantastic. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Likewise. You too. Bye.